Welcome to Studies in the Scriptures with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, a broadcast ministry of Return to the Word and made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Today we're going to go back to our discipleship series, to our fifth study. And our purpose is to understand the three tenses of salvation as derived from a consistent application in sound rules of biblical interpretation. Here's my goal for each of you. I want you to see the value of rightly dividing the Word of God with regard to the three tenses of salvation. I want every believer to gain a personal assurance of eternal salvation and gain an understanding of the provision God has made for victory over the power of the sin in the Christian life. To be able to rejoice in the hope of freedom from the presence of sin when you one day are in the presence of the Lord. And we started to identify the distinctions between salvation past tense, present tense, and future tense. We saw the importance of establishing context to get the right meaning of a word. I use the example of the word bark. It could be referring to tree bark or a dog bark. Many words have this issue, pool, bolt. Their meanings all depend on the context. Then we applied this and said, the word salvation, noun, or save, verb, have a general meaning of deliverance from someone or something, being rescued from some sort of danger or enemy. In general, there are two types of deliverance in the Bible. The first is physical deliverance from physical danger of some kind. Danger from enemies, a loss of life or health. We looked at David praying to be delivered from his son, Absalom. So there is physical deliverance, physical salvation. Then when it comes to spiritual deliverance, there are three kinds that are mentioned in the Bible. There is deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance from the power of sin, and deliverance from the presence of sin. In our last study, it focused on our past salvation, the spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is always a past reality for every believer. We refer to this as our position in Christ. Theologically, we call it justification. And we defined it this way. We said it is a divine act whereby an infinite holy God judicially declares a believing sinner to be righteous and acceptable before him because Christ has borne the sinner's sin on the cross and has become our righteousness. This is God declaring his people righteous. And here's why we should be careful. It's not that believers are acquitted of their sin as if they were never guilty of sin. That's not quite accurate. Justification means that God now sees believers in the righteousness of Christ, and therefore he declares them righteous in his sight, even though he knows our sin, because Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. And once we come to faith for our eternal salvation, once we have passed from death unto life, then and only then can we understand the other two tenses of salvation. Then and only then can we understand and enjoy the provision that God has made for us to have victory over the power of sin in our daily Christian life. The sin nature in us still tries to rule and reign in our lives just as before our eternal salvation. And even though we have been saved from sin's penalty, and even though we have been saved from slavery to the dictates of our sin nature, we still live in Satan's world under his world system, and God wants to free us from the spiritual damage in our lives. 
Now, we've already been saved from sin's damnation in the past, so now God wants to save us from sin's damaging effects in our Christian walk. God wants to save us from the power of sin to control our lives, and to see this in the scriptures, first let's head to 1 Timothy 4.16. In verse 12, Paul is teaching Timothy about the importance of being a good example, and he says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in the word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Be an example in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and purity. How you live your life matters. In verse 13, Paul was teaching Timothy about the importance of sound preaching of the word of God. And look at how simple this is. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Of all the things the church is known for today, the scriptures and sound doctrine are not part of that. Then in verse 14, he's exhorting Timothy about the importance of not being negligent about his responsibility. And he says, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. In verse 15, Paul is teaching him about the importance of being absorbed with these things, not being distracted. And he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Then we have our text, verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Notice that again. You will save both yourself and those who hear you. See, both Paul and Timothy were believers, so Paul cannot be talking about being saved from sin's penalty. He's talking about being saved from the damaging effects of sin in Timothy's life through the consistent intake of the Word of God and walking in the Spirit. And so what would happen in his life? Well, by being consistent in the Word of God, by being consistent in walking in the Spirit, he would enjoy a deliverance from the lusts or works of the flesh. Timothy would learn about his position in Christ and how to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit of God. This would have other impacts on his life too because this would directly impact others. Timothy taught the Word of God, and so if Timothy was learning to walk by faith, he could also have an influence of saving other Christians from the power of sin in their life, the people that heard him and witnessed his life. The very fact that we still sin is really unfortunate, and it's the most disappointing thing about our Christian life. I've never been disappointed in Jesus Christ. I've never been disappointed in the Word of God, but I have been plenty disappointed in others and in the sin nature that is alive in my own life. This is where this teaching becomes so important because one day we're going to be with the Lord in heaven, where we won't have a sin nature and we won't have sin-cursed bodies. But God didn't leave us empty-handed now. In his grace, he has provided a path that makes it possible for us to be successful as believers. And by successful, I mean believers who live godly lives, not sinless lives, but lives in which we can enjoy fellowship with the Lord and where we can see the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives instead of the works of the flesh. James wrote to believers about the benefits of learning this present salvation in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And he said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Here is a question. If James is writing to the believers, and he is, then why is he talking to them about saving their souls? And before you answer, let's consider, is he talking about something that happened in the past or something that could happen in the present? And if you look at the context, clearly he is referring to something that could happen in the present. He's talking about saving their souls from the damaging power of sin in their lives by the intake of the word of God. That's why he says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Lay aside the manner in which you lived your life before you were saved. Remember how Paul described our lives before our salvation in Titus 3.3. He said, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So the question in James is, how? How can I lay aside the manner in which I've lived my life before I was saved? Well, you, you learn to do that as you humbly receive the word of God with a teachable attitude, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of needed changes and rely upon the power of the Spirit to accomplish those changes in your life. This will save you from the needless damage that sin can cause you in your life. Even though we as believers are saved from the penalty of sin, there are still consequences to sin. God graciously wants to save us from those consequences. Remember what the Old Testament writer said in Psalm 119. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, we need a daily attitude that wants a consistent intake of the word of God so that it can have a saving effect on our lives. When Christians are not interested in the word of God, then they are really saying they have no interest in having God's word at work in their lives. The word of God can calibrate our thinking. It can remind us of truth and it can warn us of certain pitfalls. That is all to say that verse 21 is clearly in the context of present salvation, which is really the whole entire context of James 2, salvation from the damaging influence of sin in our lives. It isn't about salvation from sin's penalty at all, but salvation from sin's power. At some point in your faith, you'll hear someone say, doesn't the Bible say to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? What is simply amazing about the grace of God is that he has provided everything necessary for us to enjoy salvation from sin's power in our lives. Philippians 2.12 teaches, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be serious about the Christian faith. Be serious about the effects of sin. We are not serious enough about sin and its consequences. God wants you, Christian, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as we live our Christian lives from day to day. Sin can ravage your life and take you down a path in which you never thought you would go. God wants to deliver you from this. Paul does not say work for your salvation. He says work out your own salvation. Allow it to get worked out in your life. This indicates a process here. See, God not only instructs us to work out our own salvation, but he provides a total means by which to do this. Allow me to add some comments to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will from the new nature that he gave you at your new birth and to do for his good pleasure 
The power to do comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. See, whenever God gives you a command to do, he reminds us of the divine resources that he has provided by his grace to work it out in your life. God wants your cooperation through a yielded dependence upon him. These verses in Philippians 2 are not about eternal salvation. They are about our present salvation from the power of sin in our life. James 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Here's another passage that used the word save. Into which category of salvation does it fit? Well, it's talking about present tense salvation. When we're talking about salvation from sin's power, we're talking theologically about sanctification. Sanctification basically means to be set apart, and this can be done in the three tenses. You were set apart in the past under God at your new birth due to your position in Christ. This is positional sanctification. As you walk with the Lord day by day, you are in the process of practical sanctification in the present as you are being set apart from the world by the work of the Holy Spirit, using the scriptures to cleanse your thinking. But our complete, our perfect sanctification is our final perfection when we will be changed by God's transforming power into the image of his son in spirit, soul, and body. And this will not happen until the future day when the Lord returns for his bride, the church. The vast majority of the time, sanctification is referring to our practical sanctification, the working of the Holy Spirit through the intake of the scriptures to save us from the power of sin in our present lives, present tense salvation. This is a process in time while you walk in the spirit and the conditions under which this occurs is that it is again by God's grace as you have a yielded and daily dependence on the Lord by the Holy Spirit in you. All of this is in anticipation of the day in which either by death or by rapture, we're going to be saved from sin's presence or its defilement in every way. Sin will no longer have an effect on our bodies, our souls. Every believer who understands the power that the sin nature still has in their life has a hope for the future day when they will be saved from the presence of sin in their life. And by hope, the Bible doesn't speak about something that is just a dream or a wish. What do we mean by hope? What does the Bible mean by hope? Well, hope is a confident expectation of a future reality. It's an eager waiting or anticipation for a future certainty. It's faith in the future tense. Believers will one day enjoy the presence of heaven when there is no defilement or influence of sin. This is called our blessed hope in Titus 2.13. In Romans, Paul wrote to believers in Christ explaining justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then in chapter 5, he goes over some of the blessings and results of justification, including eternal security. And Romans 5, 9 teaches us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Notice the words, having now been justified. Well, what tense of salvation is that talking about? That's past tense. Since we have put our trust in Christ in the past, what is now guaranteed? that we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be saved is 
future tense. It's looking ahead. It's referring to the fact that believers will never be condemned to hell. Praise God. We'll never experience eternal separation from God in hell, nor will believers be the objects of God's coming wrath during the tribulation. We shall be saved. It is in the indicative mood, which means that this is a certain fact. It is not in the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility, which would then translate, we might be saved. This is, we shall be saved. This is the guarantee and promise of God. This is eternal security. If you've been justified in the past by Christ's blood, then this is a guarantee by God. You shall be saved in the future from the wrath to come through Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. We can see this again in Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awaken out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Paul is writing years after he first was converted to believers in Rome. He is very clear that salvation from sin's penalty was conditioned only upon first believing in Christ alone. But how can our salvation now be nearer than when we first believed? Well, as time goes on for a believer, our past tense salvation is getting further away. Our present tense salvation is always right with us now. Therefore, this verse can only be talking about a future tense, future salvation from sin's presence. Paul was talking about going home to be with the Lord, and then they would be delivered from sin's presence. Therefore, he says, live your life in the meantime with spiritual alertness. Live your life in the meantime with an attitude of thankfulness for his grace. Live your life in the meantime differently than the unsaved. Watch the next few verses with me. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Therefore, in light of their justification by God's grace and anticipation of their going home to be with the Lord, they were to live godly lives in the meantime. So think of it this way. They were to be saved from sin's power in anticipation of being saved from sin's presence. But what if you fail in your Christian life? What if you break down in having victory over sin's power in your life? What about your future? Will you still go to heaven? We know the right answer, but this is where people get off track. And the answer comes in 1 Corinthians 3. The believers in Corinth were stuck in their carnality. They were characterized by living lives that were controlled by their sin natures. Then in verse 11 of that chapter, Paul uses an illustration. And he says, for no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Every believer has the foundation, Jesus Christ, but God wants to build on that foundation. And he goes on in verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on this foundation, which is gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. There is coming a day when the works for every believer in their present salvation will be evaluated to see what kind of life they lived after they had been justified. How fruitful was their sanctification life? Did they live their life to the glory of God or to the glory of self? Did they live in the power of the Holy Spirit or did they crank it out in the power of their own flesh? 
Did they live to fulfill the will of God or to fulfill their own will? There's going to be an evaluation. The purpose of this evaluation will not be to determine if they go to heaven or not. This evaluation takes place in heaven and is to determine whether believers will receive a reward or not for their service to the Lord. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Keep in mind that salvation, justification, is never referred to in the Bible as a reward. It is a gift. It is a present possession that was obtained in the past. This passage, on the other hand, says that he will receive a reward in the future. If you live your life in the power of the Holy Spirit and build on your foundation with permanent materials, you will receive a reward. Even though we all sin, and even though some Christians go through a time of extended disobedience to Christ, God is saying here that your life can still count for Christ as long as you're breathing air. To encourage these weak Christians at Corinth to walk with the Lord, Paul talked to them about rewards. There's a lot of reasons for rewards. Can you think of some? God is graciously offering us a reward so that one day we can say that it was worth it to live for Jesus Christ. It was worth it to do the will of God. It was worth it to endure the hardships. It was worth it to suffer for righteousness. It was worth it to live for the one who died for me. But not everyone will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When God applies fire to your building, the wood, hay, and straw materials will go up in smoke, but the foundation of Jesus Christ will still remain. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you is a foundation on which your salvation is based. When the fire is applied, the foundation will remain and your salvation remains intact. Verse 15 is a guarantee that every believer will be saved, even if he doesn't receive a reward. Notice that he will be saved is in the future tense. He's talking about heaven or salvation from sin's presence. It's in the passive voice, which means someone else saved you, God. And it's in the indicative mood, which means that it's settled. Again, not something that is a possibility. This is a certain fact that is guaranteed a future salvation for believers. Even those who waste their lives, even those whose lives go up in smoke and they don't receive a reward. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, where the context is the day of the Lord. The coming time of God's intervention into human history when he pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world during the seven-year tribulation period. In chapter 4, Paul talks about the rapture. And in chapter 5, he talks about the day of the Lord, which is a time of wrath. Chapter 5, starting in verse 9, where it says, For God did not point us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Notice that God has appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation is a full salvation from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and from sin's presence, and from the wrath of the day of the Lord, including the wrath of the tribulation. Theologically, we call this future salvation glorification. One day we will receive a glorified body, and our bodies will be rid of a sin nature. This will happen at a point in time, and the condition under which this will happen is at a believer's death or at the rapture of the church, when the Lord returns to receive those who are his. 
The generation of living believers who will see the rapture will never die physically, but will have their bodies transformed in an instant to get new glorified bodies as they're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Every church-age believer who will see death before the rapture, they will experience the deliverance from the sin nature at death. But they're not going to receive their glorified body until they are raised from the dead at the time of the rapture. And the point of all this is that if you don't notice these distinctions in Scripture, if you lump them all together into this general idea of salvation, then people start to think of heaven as a reward. Or they start to think that if they get into a pattern of sin in their life, that they are either not saved or they will lose their salvation. But the Bible is clear that it is not possible to lose your salvation. You will never lose salvation from sin's penalty, and you will never lose salvation from sin's presence. If you choose to live according to the flesh, you'll not be saved from the power of sin in your life. And you're not going to receive any reward in heaven if you waste your entire Christian life living in the flesh, fulfilling its lusts and desires. See, I think a lot of Christians are going to be disappointed at the judgment seat. Let's look at two last passages as we close that show us all three aspects of salvation in just a few verses. 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 through 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then Titus 2 verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what should motivate us? The love of Christ that caused him to give himself for us. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Good works cannot save anyone from the penalty, power, or presence of sin, but they are to be an overflow of a Christian life of the believer walking, depending upon the power of the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of Christ. Learn this concept of the three tenses of salvation. You need to know it if you want to study the Bible and if you want to lead your family. Every passage of Scripture about the believer's salvation fits into one of these three categories. And if you're wondering about the correct interpretation of a verse, ask the question, into which tenses of salvation does this fit? This will help greatly in rightly dividing the word of truth. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Studies in the Scriptures. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.